This podcast was recorded before COVID-19 and protests around the death of all Black lives. Just as a reminder, here at It's Personal Podcast, we try to amplify the voices so often hidden in our world. Listen, take notes, and learn. Be nice, be kind, and respect one another. Peace. Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Gary, and welcome to the second season of It's Personal. Okay, good. This is going to be really dope, but I don't want any <laughs> Putting yourself out there as practitioners who are growing and learning. Not at all. My name is Kwame Mbalia. I'm an author. I'm Padma Venkatraman, the author of The Bird Home. Sure, yeah. My name is Natasha Diaz. Code switching and all those things. I mean, all of that. All the time. I mean, he's still on the road all the time, but you know, like as a new mom. The relationship that I have cultivated from there. I'm I'm so excited to talk to you. This is amazing. This is so fun. All right. Uh, Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of It's Personal. And today I have another author that I admire. Um, I love her writing um, so dearly. I think everything that she writes comes with like a unique style and presence. And she always writes with um, a specific meaning and purpose in mind. Um, Do you, can you please introduce yourself? All right. Hey, Gary. This is (laughs) Evie Eats a Boy. And I'm the author of American Street Pride, uh, the editor of the anthology Black Enough, and author of My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich, and co-author of the forthcoming book, novel in verse, uh, Punching the Air with Yousef Salam of the Exonerated Five. Wow. Wow. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, it, Thank we you. Tried a, we tried a couple of times. I think it just didn't work out, but... Um, you one thing I love about you is that like you also are interactive online so I remember when I was reading um, your book online I was just sharing how I was feeling about it Um, you were very much in it with me and you're sharing ideas and commenting back so before all that I appreciate just like how active you are online yeah Um, I I could be more active but I'll take it I I get it because um, I just I know as a parent um, who's also you and daddy I know. I I just know as a parent, oh, as, as oh, a teacher, okay. <laughs> as a teacher, I know that parents are being told in multiple ways. Um, and then on top of that, you're an author and you're doing so many other things. So um, I just appreciate your time so, so much. I do. Right. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So can we just start by like, I want to hear, I know a little bit about your story. Just like how, how did you end up in New Jersey? I read a little bit of your story. You're in Brooklyn um, as well. It's the American dream. (laughs) (laughs) I am in the suburbs in my lovely home um, Mm -hmm. with a lovely backyard and a front yard. And after I'm done with this, I'm going to go sit with the moms and sip wine and talk about menopause. Um, Mm -hmm. This... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Gary don't know about that life. <laughs> you don't know about that life. <laughs> and my husband will probably hang out with dads on the block and they will all talk politics and COVID-19 and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So this is the American dream. This is what we work hard for. Mm-hmm. To be mm-hmm. able to chill. Um, right now, Brooklyn is a hot spot. Mm-hmm. I hear that fireworks are going off at all times of the night. Um, wow. Social distancing is almost impossible and people are exhausted from being in their tiny apartments and it's crowded on the streets. So 
Um, I love Brooklyn at the same time. I worked hard to get out. It was never that get out like the movie, right? Um, it was never my dream to like live in this. It was a dream to own a home, but I never imagined that it would be in the suburbs. So mm. basically I got priced out. We got priced out of um, Brooklyn. Wow. Uh, and while my mom was able to own a home in New York City and Queens, we were not able to. So fortunately, you know, we got to a point where we could afford to purchase a home, but it just couldn't be in Brooklyn. So we're mm -hmm. in New Jersey now and it's much better. Um, wow. It's a much better quality of life um, mm -hmm. with trees and grass and foliage and fresh air. You know, with, it lengthens the polymers, you know, the, mm -hmm. the stuff in your cells that makes you feel like less stress. Mm -hmm. It's so much mm -hmm. better for um, our health. I do feel it. Taxes are mm -hmm. high, so it keeps me, like this makes me want to hustle more. New York mm -hmm. is a different type of hustle, but when you find um, a certain peace of mind and a certain quality of life, you want to work harder to maintain that. Of course, and, and that's time to mm -hmm. be able to maintain that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that's ingrained in a lot of people, like us in general. That we, once we get somewhere, we tend to work even harder to to, to stay there. To stay there, <laughs> we <laughs> we enjoy it and we live yeah. it, and then we want to continue to 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 appreciate it and, and use that as fire to keep us going. Um, right, right. Ibi, what did, like, and I always ask this question because I think it's so interesting just to hear your perspective on it. What did your schooling look like when you were younger um, in regards to friendships, in regards to teachers, in regards to um, even, like, the books that were given to you? <laughs> books. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I don't often get to talk about it because my childhood in New York City really frames who I am now. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I was a little hood rat. You know, I know in Toronto. Do you have hood rats in Toronto? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and I don't present that way. My colors, I'm a mom, suburban mom. But I um, I moved from Haiti. So I was born in Haiti and I moved to, the, uh, to New York at four years old. But we moved to a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Bushwick. And I grew up during the crack era. I grew up during... Um, when New York was um, financially, almost financially bankrupt. And my neighborhood was a lot of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and Caribbeans and African-Americans. And I started public school in that neighborhood. And my mother, I started first grade in kindergarten in the public school. And my mother pulled me out when a little boy spat in my face. Um, wow. Just rapidly. Little Puerto Rican kid was like, you know, it's, Pat, you know, right in my face. And I cried and I went and told the teacher and, you know, the teacher, you know, whatever, just wash your face. Um, I, I think people forget how rough New York City was. Children mm -hmm. were rough. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know I have friends who are older, you know, in their early 50s. And the joke is that, you know, I spent some time with them recently, just socially distanced. And the joke is that we're, we're about to go back to 1980s, New York City. And I think people who are not 
from New York City. There are a lot of people who are moving to New York City. They don't understand how rough it was. Children were horrible. <laughs> so I just, um, you know, a little boy just and it spat in my face. Um, and they weren't like, they weren't bad because they were bad kids. I don't believe in bad kids, but it was a lot of un uh, underemployment, um, a lot of addiction, a lot of poverty, and children, children absorb that in different ways. So my mother pulled me out and put me in the Catholic school across the street. Wow. So I was in Catholic school. And back then it wasn't like public school versus charter schools. It was public school or the Catholic school. The local, and there were a lot of Catholic churches that had Catholic schools that were around since, you know, maybe the late 1800s in these neighborhoods. And um, Catholic school was much better. It was the same demographic, um, Black and Latinx kids, but all the teachers were white. All the teachers wow. were not. My teachers were Sister Anne and Sister Mary and Sister Mag Margaret. And I had, it was, it was just much better by the time I got to Catholic school. Um, and yeah, I didn't have, if you're talking about teachers, I didn't have my first black teacher until the seventh grade, a math teacher. And then I didn't have another black teacher again until college. So between, no, in kindergarten, I had Mr. Larry who had a missing arm cause he was a Vietnam vet. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, and then that was, um, that was it. Two black teachers. Wow. Um, I could, you know, I could go on and on about mm -hmm. mine, but I was in Catholic, I went to an all white, mostly white Catholic high school mm -hmm. um, out of my graduating class had 700 students out of which 20 were black. Wow. This is where I got, I perfected code switching in high school. Code switching? Yeah, you know what code oh, switching I know, yes I do. And I would love to, for you to share more because it's something that I, I would almost say most recently in the last five or 10 years have been trying to think more deeply about um, just that idea of having to turn on and off my blackness, which is so unfair, but the, the trauma that's involved with that. I would love to just hear more about that if you don't mind. Well, just I'm, I'm going, I'm moving from schools that were mostly children of color um, black and Latin, Latinx kids and, and middle school, it was black, Latinx, South Asian kids. And then moving to, you know, going to a school where in some classes I was the only black girl there. And I had to drop the bass in my voice, you know, I'm 14, I don't have a bass. Mm -hmm. But to answer questions, to raise your hand, you got to do things to make you make them think that you belong or make mm -hmm. yourself feel comfortable within that space. Mm -hmm. So over time, maybe I, I ended up sounding like the other girls. I probably, I still do that now mm -hmm. um, because I can, I can talk like this and then I could talk, I can talk like this. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. I know. <laughs> hey, we just, I hundred percent know what you're, oh, what you're talking but about. Before you started recording. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> exactly. Before you started, me, so I was like, what up, Gary? You know it's hot. A little funky over here. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I love. That, you know what? I, I, love, um, I love that you felt that comfortable to do that because I right away that shows me that I don't have to do the same thing. Um, 
I do. I, I appreciate that. I really, really do. So I, I get it. I totally get right. it. Right. So yeah, I didn't, I just came on and I saw a black face, a brother. I was like, <laughs> hey, brother. Hey, young blood. Hey, young blood. Yeah. Um, but then you start recording and I'm like, hi, I'm Evie Zavoy, author of American Street. <laughs> I, and it's oh, a I, no, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm a certain age. I know there are younger authors who don't feel like they have to do that or don't do that period, mm-hmm. but I'm of a certain age. So it's ingrained in me. I, mm-hmm. I can't, I was just telling a friend earlier, I can't go on social media and talk at the side of out the side of my neck, you know, just mm-hmm. say anything because um, I'm o- I'm older and mm-hmm. professionalism has been ingrained in me and mm-hmm. code switching is just part of my my you know performance, mm-hmm. right? So for mm-hmm. me to not code switch and be authentic, I would feel inauthentic. I'd be wow. like, what am I doing? What? Why wow. am I talking like this? right <laughs> that is so powerful though you be like just because i now i didn't even notice that um just based on the authors that i follow and i i read about etc and i've seen through either instagram live or just videos on youtube or whatever you are so 100 percent correct like there's a generation now where they don't they are 110 percent themselves to the point where <laughs> I'm assuming like publishers, editors, like you can't say anything because that's what you're getting 100% of the time, right? Um, and I right. do see a group that is older who is, yes, definitely less of, of that based on experience, I think based right. on being in the field a lot longer. Wow, right. I didn't I didn't even think right. about that. And it's until not to say all. Oh, there are people who are older than me who are very active and very vocal, but it's not in the same way that somebody younger. Like Ro- Roxanne Gay is older mm-hmm. than me. Mm-hmm. But she's very active, but her tone is very different, you know? It is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there there are authors who are 10, 15 years younger than me. I don't judge. I'm just like, I could never say that. You know, mm-hmm. I can behind the scenes, but it just wouldn't feel if I, I know my who, people who follow me or my readers, mm-hmm. I think there are a couple of times I'm like, I'm like, you know, let me just say what I want to say. Mm-hmm. And then it's crickets, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm sure people are like, who's that? Who, who took over your Twitter account? <laughs> because it, it, it's inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it is yeah. a generational thing. A hundred percent. Personal. 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 Right. Right. Can we talk more about um, just like your family? Do you have siblings? I do have siblings. I do have a younger brother and a younger sister. Okay. Um, can we talk? <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? In your 20s? I'm not in my 20s. 30s? I, oh, I wow, know look I'm in my 30s. I'm not, I'm not a baby. <laughs> I said, look at that baby face. <laughs> <laughs> the 30s. Okay, no. So, my, no, no. 
Oh no, I have a little brother who's gonna be who's twenty nine and a sister mm-hmm. who's thirty five. Okay. And my little brother is an accountant, and you know he's all smitten. He's had a girlfriend um, who's a doctor, so you can't tell my mom anything. <laughs> and course. my sister just passed the bar. Um, oh wow! So, yeah, congratulations. Again, so I'm I'm the f up in the family. <laughs> okay. That's a pretty good F up then. My mother, yeah, no, but she doesn't understand. She's like, where's your pension? You know, where where's your 401k? Like, she doesn't care. She's like, you do. I'm like, here's mom, here's my book. They paid you how much for what? What did we do for 200 words? <laughs> right, right. That is bananas. Oh, God, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah. So what was that? What was your guys' household like growing up then? Um, so I am Haitian. I'm Haitian born. Um, my mom is a stereotypical Haitian, a bougie Haitian. <laughs> um, you're in Toronto, so you're probably around a lot of Haitians and Caribbean. Are you Caribbean? I'm not. Okay. Well, you know what? I shouldn't say I'm not because my ancestors were Caribbean, Caribbean and okay. Jamaican. So yes. Okay. Okay. So growing up, um, very strict upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. I went to Catholic school, but as I said, I was a little hood rat. Hood rat means like <laughs> I wasn't yeah. hanging out outside, but I was hood rat adjacent. You know, <laughs> <laughs> adjacent. Yeah, because. I didn't have any, all my friends are black and they're mm-hmm. little girls on the street who would just be like, who would come knock on my door. Can you play outside? Can your mama let you play outside? No, I can't go outside. Okay, I'm gonna sit on your stoop. Can you sit on the stoop? You sit on the stoop. So I was relegated to the stoop and couldn't go past mm-hmm. the stoop and onto the sidewalk. So sidewalk meant freedom. The stoop, like there was a gate in the stoop. So I was relegated to the stoop. So that's why I say I'm hood rat adjacent. <laughs> Cause, cause <laughs> you, have you used that in a book yet? I think that that phrase is amazing. Hood rat adjacent. I, love I have that. not. I have not. Um, <laughs> maybe in my memoir. I do plan on writing a memoir. Oh, it'd be so I good. Memoir. Yeah, but you... I sneaked out of the out of the house a lot as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I think yeah. it's amazing. And what? Um, I'm thinking just about like you spoke a lot about like your mom. Um, what role did your uh, dad play in all of this? So that's why I'm writing a memoir. <laughs> I have okay. Issues. Now my father. Um, so I share the story when I share, um, like when I present for American Street in schools. Um, my mom was a broadcast journalist in Haiti, so I have pictures mm-hmm. of her in a radio station. And my father owned the radio station. He was a big time personality oh, um, wow. city, the second largest city in Haiti, um, maybe third or fourth. Um, but he wow. started a second radio station in Haiti in the 60s. Um, before that, there was only one radio station. So, so my father was 30 years older than my mom and my mom was um, a mistress. Um, he mm-hmm. was already married with two children and my mom um, gave birth to me out of wedlock. Uh, so that's part of the reason why she left Haiti. She could not mm-hmm. find um, work as a teacher after 
not after leaving her job as the broadcast as a broadcast journalist in the radio station mm-hmm. and she basically from what she's told me over the years just was trying to get away from my father and i wrote about it my father was a womanizer in the same way that bill cosby was mm-hmm. and during the bill cosby events <laughs> um i had to process that because bill mm-hmm. cosby was a father figure and for the first time i had to think about this idea of having a father figure or having a father who is misogynist or mm-hmm. a rapist, you know, mm-hmm. or is accused of sexually assaulting women. He has mm-hmm. four daughters. And here mm-hmm. I am, a daughter of uh, someone, a man who harms women. Mm-hmm. And I had to process that in essay form. Wow. Uh, and my father died of HIV AIDS. <laughs> in 1990. Wow. Hear that? You coughed. <laughs> no, I did hear that. I'm, I'm trying to just again wrap my head around all of it because you're still, um, you're, you're young during this time. Like yeah. Well, yeah. Right? All of this shows up in my novels if wow. you do some psychoanalysis. <laughs> wow. <laughs> my novels, especially my middle grade. My middle grade is weird because I was processing 12. I was mm-hmm. 12 when my father passed away and I did not live with him. It's just that there was just a lot of secrets around mm-hmm. how I think I, at that time, there were five different stories going around of how my father died. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I did hear the rumor that he died of AIDS, HIV, but it wasn't mm-hmm. until adulthood that I found out that he actually did die of HIV AIDS. Wow. And that's a story in and of itself. And mm-hmm. I write about it talking <clears throat> about how patriarchy looks in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Patriarchy and rape looks very different in third world countries. Mm-hmm. Sometimes rape doesn't involve violence. Is this kid friend? This is not PG-13. Is this PG-13? No, it's not. This is, I'm just, I'm honestly like very honored that you're even sharing this information with me, but you if are. If anybody asks, I just, I'm a, like a diluge of like personal <laughs> stories. Um, but yeah, my father, um, yeah, at, at 12, I had to process that, but it wasn't until after the earthquake. Actually, I didn't find out for sure until six months before the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, wow. that how my father died. And when I left Haiti, my father had two other children and I knew them as children. And I remembered them before I left Haiti. I remember being three and four. Mm-hmm. When there's such a shift like that, when you're very young, it leaves an indelible mark in your subconscious and in your memory. So I never really mm-hmm. forgot Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, I, so it wasn't until before the earthquake, my sister found me on Facebook. And we talked, she was like, yes, my father did die of HIV AIDS. And nobody really told me that at 12. Wow. Um, That is experiencing that. But at the same time, now you're also in the process of writing your memoir right now. I'm not in the process of writing my memoir. I said, I'm going to. (laughs) You're going to write one. I am going to write one, but it's not for another few years. But all of these, it, it makes its way. I think a lot of my books, even when the father is not present, my characters are dealing with daddy issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Like American Street, my character deals with a father figure, a mythical father figure, 
in pride. My character is really connected, has a healthy relationship with her father. Mm -hmm. um, my life is an ice cream sandwich, complicated relationships with father and grandfather and male oh, secrets. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And um, let's see with, um, I'm partnering with um, a young, like a man. I, there's things in male relationships that I'm trying to trying to still work out and I might mm -hmm. write an essay about it mm -hmm. um, but I grew up with my mother like just you know they're like households where the mom is dogging the father out you mm -hmm. know yeah <laughs> your daddy ain't no good your daddy you know so I grew up like that in that my father was just this mythical figure he was just like a no no you know no good mm. you know low down dirty dog um, mm -hmm. but and then he dies <laughs> Wow. And maybe are these um just by like listening to you like are these because when i read a lot of your stories and i'll go back to the most recent one that i read um the uh, ice cream sandwich one and it's just like are you when you're writing these stories out like what are you feeling knowing that a lot of these go back to your dad where there were times of just like struggle and like anger and like all those things like what are you feeling during that process when you're using those ideas within those books because you just said there's pieces in each one basically i don't i can't say there was struggle or anger hmm. i was the kind of kid who just like was like deer in headlights for okay. just processing mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. i'm it you know i was that nerdy kid who just didn't tap into feelings just yet Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until adulthood when I started writing that the act of writing was cathartic, mm -hmm. getting it out. And then looking back on a body of work to realize like, oh, snap, this was like therapeutic for me mm -hmm. <laughs> here. And that's another thing with being sheltered in a, I was in a very loud, bustling, active neighborhood. I lived there but I never took part of it. That's why I say I'm hood rat. I'm hood adjacent, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. I watched it all go down from a window mm -hmm. or from a front stoop. So mm -hmm. a lot of these stories are like, in American Street, my character's looking out a window and seeing things go down. Wow. Pride starts from out of a window and my character, there's all these things around windows and front stoops mm -hmm. that, that I didn't know it's part of my subconscious. When you're writing, it is therapeutic, you know, when you're writing from the heart, mm -hmm. um, there are things that come out that reveal certain truths about yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just makes sense that there's pieces of you in your work. Like it just, yeah. of course there is. Of course yeah, there is. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything, yeah. I think for the most part, everything is biography biographical even when you're writing 100 I 100 percent <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. agree with you um and i hear i hear your story and i'm listening and I'm, I'm excited to read more and not just i guess it now gives me another like insight on your work and mm -hmm. the other things i could be looking at and and reading into I have to look for it. <laughs> I did not, not necessarily look for it, but I think I, I've always respected your writing um, and your craft. Um, but this just Ew. makes it even more um, special, knowing that it comes from a place like this. Because um, I can see it. Like if anyone who's has read your work, like you can tell that it comes from like the heart, and you 
you don't just put anything on a piece of paper like it's coming from somewhere so right um, right this again this makes it even more powerful for me um to know to know that story right right yeah yeah um i have just a few more just actually yeah. one more question for you <laughs> you Evie, like what are you <laughs> i just like talking to you yes yeah <laughs> what are you doing um right now um to just find joy joy i know it's hard it's a tough question yeah no no i understand i think for me it's sanity sanity is joy for me like right Mm. things that make me feel um like things make sense i have to do something that makes the world make sense so a thing that i don't talk about in like publishing is that um I'm very spiritual and I practice African spiritual traditions. Um, and sometimes that may scare people. Um, sometimes it's part of the conversation. So there's some fantasy books that talk about Orisha, like children of blood and bone. There are people who who serve Orisha or who, um, who honor Orishas, which are like African Yoruba, or Ifa deities. Mm-hmm. So right now, like I have to have an altar to honor my ancestors. I have to pay attention to nature and what's going on. These are tools that were passed down to us from our ancestors. And I think this is a time that we need to tap into those tools. There are a lot of political conversations happening about what needs to happen next and defund the police and abolish prison systems and dismantle white supremacy white supremacist systems Mm -hmm. so in my mind i'm like well what are we going to replace those with what sort of systems Mm -hmm. do we adhere to to take the place of those things that gave us some sort of structure so Mm -hmm. you know our this white supremacist system is a structure and what happens when we dismantle it what do we what do we lean on so for Mm -hmm. me i'm leaning on spirituality because i think African spirituality is the antithesis of white supremacy. If there are, you know, capitalist structures or oppressive structures that exist outside in the world, then there are holistic structures that honor nature, that honor energy, that honor, you know, the inherent, um, the inherent ways that we are human, right? That Mm -hmm. honors humanity. Um, So that's what I'm doing to stay sane and find Mm -hmm. joy is in ritual Mm -hmm. Um, right now radical honesty Mm -hmm. radical honesty means like if you ask me something i'm not going to hide the truth and the truth Mm -hmm. is like i need to burn some sage right or Mm -hmm. wear my whites (laughs) right or Mm -hmm. eat some you know food and alkaline Mm -hmm. water and salads and stuff like that to you know, to enable healing mm-hmm. on a personal level. I think collectively we need healing first before we dismantle anything. Mm-hmm. So that was like level 10 of radical truth. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, actually, let's first, maybe where can people find you online? Uh, at EB's a boy on all social media platforms and EB's a boy.net is my website. And, and I am not as active as Gary said. <laughs> I am old school. <laughs> Don't let the Twitter feed fool you. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and Evie, okay. is there anything you are um, 
currently working on that you can share? Well, um, I do have a picture book uh, coming out next year. Um, Punching the Air comes out in September. It's a novel in verse. I am all over the place. I am not a one-trick pony. I love if it. If you are entering the industry, Gary, um, some people do can you know are known for a certain thing. And then some people are just like, you know what, right now I feel like writing about a picture book, you know, mm-hmm. um, a picture book about first day of school or a picture book about Kwanzaa. So I'm mm-hmm. really excited about my Kwanzaa picture book. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It means you're versatile, though. Honestly, it means you can you don't have to stay in that one lane. Like, I think that's I, I personally think that's amazing that you're able to do that. And they're right. willing to try that as well. Is this, this is your first picture book, you said. Um, first published picture book. Yeah. First published so picture book. That's awesome. Odd, six, 56 illustrated pages, and then I just saw the final product, and it's so incredibly gorgeous. I cried because oh. there's something magical about when your words are paired with images, mm-hmm. and there's like the partnership that goes with that. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, we made a baby together. You know? <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. I want to thank you so much for just spending. Thank you, Gary. You asked some really thoughtful questions. Yeah. No, you, I love that this was so, um, I'm going to stop the recording right now. But I love that it was so. Amazing.